Well, this morning we are concluding the, the first of three books as we make our way through and have really been seeking to answer the question of what is a, a gospel-centered community and what would it look like if, if that were to happen here. You'll remember that we, we started this study in 1 Timothy, we're going to go into 2 Timothy, and we'll conclude with Titus. And it's really centered around this question of, of what would have to change if we went through and adopted all the things that, that Paul writes uh, here to Timothy and later to, to Titus. You know, and I started thinking about this, and, and he offers us a really a great conclusion here in 20 and 21 of chapter 6. But just like any road trip, you have to know where you're going on a trip, right? I mean, you can't ensure that things are going to work out just the way you want them to on the journey, but you have to at least know where you're going. Well, this past week, like many of you, I had Thanksgiving, and Valerie and I drove down to Houston, and so last Sunday afternoon, we got in the car had everything loaded, for the most part, the night before, and, and, and we had the most amazing road trip that we've had as a family. I mean, our, our kids are in the back seat, and, and they're four and 19 months, and it was like nobody was in the back seat. It, it was quiet. There was no traffic on the road. Um, in my mind, what I imagined when we were driving is that they're just staring at each other in the eye, holding hands and saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. <laughs> Graham is more like, blah, and Bryce would, you know, it would be, I love you, blah, back. Um, but I mean, it was just great. There was no traffic. We made record time, and in every road trip we take, really for the rest of my life, will be measured by the level of perfection in that road trip. One stop. I mean, it's great. No stops would be, you know, be better, but I've got kids. That's ridiculous. One stop. We're in, we're out, we're back on the road. It was amazing. And the week comes to an end. And we've got to go back. <laughs> and we've already set perfection, so I know that it's a high goal, but it's my goal again, perfection. Man, on the way there, you remember I said that in my mind's eye, they're holding hands, staring at each other and just communicating this brotherly love between the two of them. Well, uh, the way back was whatever the opposite of that is. I mean, uh, we're, we're headed back, whereas on the way down there, we didn't hit any traffic. I mean, the weather was bad, but we didn't hit any traffic. Uh, the way back, people are stopping to rubberneck in an accident on the other side of the road. Very few things in life irritate me, like rubberneckers. If there are any of you here that are rubberneckers, call Carol B. Uh, we're going to meet this week. We're going to work this out. Um, I, look, some of you are probably related to people that were on I-45 driving north yesterday. We will fix this, okay? Um, and so they're doing that, and so that's supremely irritating. It's, it's making the drive longer uh, Graham is singing something akin to like a dying bird swan song. Um, it's, it's not pleasant. And it's just, they were just not holding hands, in, you know, hand in hand, but looking for something to put in their hand to beat their brother with. I mean, that's, that's kind of what that trip looked like. But the trip, we, we had a destination in mind, right? Sometimes our trips go well, no bumps. Other times our trips are those that make us just want to stay home and, and rethink ever having had children. But, no, not really. This much, this much. And so, uh, on the way home, it was a decidedly different trip. 
Now, as we have journeyed through the book of 1 Timothy, there are things that, that when we come across, we see them, we want to adopt them and say, man, this is great. This is just, I mean, absolutely, we want to hear about these things. We want to hear about Jesus being the ransom for all. We want to hear all of these wonderful things. But man, there are things we come across that they're going to create bumps. They're going to create uh, rubbernecking, right? Some decisions that we make that are going to create an accident in the other lane. And it's going to be difficult. It's going to be something uncomfortable for us to work through. And Paul doesn't, doesn't write Timothy at the beginning and say, Timothy, if you do these things, your church is going to quadruple in size. Everybody's going to love each other. And on a plus side, they're going to give you a sabbatical and a bonus. And I mean, it's just going to be good stuff. No, he writes him and says, look, Timothy, you need to be faithful to the Word of God. And as you engage in these things, you are definitely going to come across some things that are going to cause strife, they're going to cause difficulty, and they're going to make some folks unhappy. You see, but the call that Paul put on Timothy's life was to be faithful to the Word of God, faithful to God and His instruction. And through the course of doing that, we're going to encounter some bumps we're going to encounter some, some accidents that maybe some of us were involved in. I mean, that's difficult, is it not? But we've got to be faithful. We've got to be patient. And as we see here today, as we read in 20 and 21, Paul is offering a summary of those things that he's already discussed, and we're going to walk through some of them in 1 Timothy. Paul writes in verse 20 of chapter 6, he says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you, avoid the irreverent babble and the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by, by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Two short verses, but are so packed full of summation of what we've already covered earlier in the book. Paul tells him, he says, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Now, Paul is reminding Timothy that he is there to safeguard something. And so there's a few different ways we can look at what this deposit is. Some have written and said that the deposit that he's talking about is the faith of the Ephesians. Paul's writing and saying, look, Timothy, you, what you need to do is make sure that you don't mess up this church. Well, he's already kicked a couple people out, and I don't know if you call that messing up, but, but he's, he's definitely going to stir some things up as he applies 1 Timothy, as he applies this letter to the church there in Ephesus. But it's on a whole more that much more of a personal note that he writes. He says he needs to safeguard the deposit. What I believe Paul is making a reference to is Timothy's personal faith. He's given much in this letter to talk about Timothy staying the course, staying on task. But here, coming back to the end, he says, look, you need to guard the deposit entrusted to you. You need to, to safeguard, you need to be vigilant in, in looking out for the personal deposit of faith in your life. Man, that is something that, that you and I both desperately need to hear this morning, that we need to be actively engaged in guarding our faith. It's not this thing that when, when Jesus saved us, when he moved in grace to bring us into faith, that we just said, oh man, I'm so glad that is taken care of, and now I can just go about my merry way. I can just enjoy things the way that I want to enjoy them. No, the word is that we are to guard, we are to be vigilant, we are to be careful, we are to give ourselves over and over and over again to the provision of that deposit. And he gives Timothy some instruction. He says, Timothy, you should avoid the irreverent babble and the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. 
you'll remember that there were those in Ephesus. Man, they had bought into false teaching. They had, had followed their own way. They had decided that, that they knew best and that they had some new addition that they wanted to add in on top of what is orthodox. And they were, they were puffed up, Paul tells us earlier. But this is what Paul writes to Timothy here. He says, look, you need to avoid that. You need to avoid the speculative teaching. You need to stay away from it. And check out what Paul says here. He says, look, they call it knowledge. But he offers this caveat. He says, they, they call it knowledge, but it is false knowledge. I mean, there are a lot of things that, that come close to Christianity that look a lot like it from a long ways away, but when you get up close and you investigate, you realize that it is nothing more than warmed-up heresy. Man, I have one of my best childhood friends who was a missionary in the Mormon church. I mean, it was a part of an amazing family. They loved each other. I'm sure every road trip they took was nothing but hand-holding, longingly looking in one another's eyes and saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. At least that's, that's what they told us when we talked about and compared our road trips. And they were a great family, and, and, and they safeguarded their time together. They safeguarded their readings. They safeguarded their worship. But when you investigate it, when you compare that to the truth in the Bible, you find out that it is false knowledge. Man, it's, it is completely opposed to the Bible. It is nothing more than irreverent babble and contradictions. But Paul writes, he says, look, some of these in Ephesus have bought into this false knowledge. And by buying into this false knowledge, by buying into the gospel plus whatever, for some of them it was stoicism, it was moving away from things, from owning stuff, from the mistreatment of the body to uh, abstaining from certain foods, abstaining from sex, abstaining from any number of things, that they would attain to a higher level of Christianity, to a higher level of righteousness. Paul says, no. You don't get to righteousness by buying into the things that were being advocated there in Ephesus. You get to righteousness through the blood of Christ. You get to righteousness by God reckoning you righteous. And some there in Ephesus had bought into this, and by doing so, they had swerved away from the truth. See, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3.15, and he gives us a beautiful definition for what the church is and how the church works to guard the deposit. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.15 that the church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. That is the church of the living God. You see, the church's role in safeguarding the deposit is to be what it is intended to be. Man, the church isn't set up to be this place where, where everybody can, can just come and we can have kind of like a, a country club that only meets on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings. I mean, that's, that's a pretty unfortunate country club if you belong to one that has such exclusive time windows as Sunday morning and Wednesday evenings. Man, cancel that membership. Find somewhere else to be a member of. You see, the church is instead meant to be that place which is advocating for truth. He says it is a pillar and a buttress for the truth. And you remember we said that truth is a substitution for the word gospel, right? So what is the church's function? The church's function is to stand on the gospel, to report the gospel 
to raise up people, men and women and children, who live lives that are testimonies of the power of the gospel. This is how the church works to guard the deposit. The church is working and doing this by being what it is intended to be. It's not consistently reinventing itself and changing itself down to its very base core so it can be more attractive, so that it can get different things, different people to come in. You see, at some point along the line of, of, of changing and modifying, Runs the danger of compromise. Now, this isn't saying, look, we are, we are this way, we will only ever be this way, and when this carpet begins to fade, we're going to come in here with, with, a, with a, whatever color carpet this is, maroon-esque, mauve, mauve, anybody? Anyway, and so we're going we're gonna to color in and say, please, please don't fail me, because if, if, if you leave, dear mauvish friend, we're in big trouble. No, see, being a pillar and a buttress isn't being someone who is afraid of change. But it's making sure that change isn't strictly done from a pragmatic reason. It's making sure that change is always done in line with the gospel, and it is never in opposition to the gospel. If we do nothing but make pragmatic decisions, then we are headed down a slippery slope, and we are headed quickly towards what Paul wrote in in chapter 1 and verse 3. Paul says, look, the church should be a pillar and a buttress. In chapter 1, verse 3 through 7, Paul said the church needs to be that which combats heresy. Paul wrote and he said, look, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrines. You'll remember that these people were giving themselves to the pursuit of myths and endless genealogies. It's like they had gotten a hold of an Old Testament and they said, man, this is good stuff. We need to import more of this. If only we we would pay attention to these genealogies and we could hold them up to the stars in the sky, we could figure out who and what we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do. They had, had given themselves so wholeheartedly to the pursuit of that, what Paul later refers to as false knowledge, that they completely missed the gospel. They completely missed the gospel. Paul says that, look, don't give yourself to this. In fact, Timothy, go in and charge them not to do that. Because certain persons, by doing this, verse 6, have wandered away into vain discussions. Verse 7, Paul tells us, he says, look, these people, they want to be teachers of the law. They want to be known as teachers of the law. They want to stand up in front. They want to have people recognize them and how great they do at, at putting forth the word of God. But in reality, this person is nothing but a windbag. Because they don't understand even the things about which they make assertions, about the things which they make confident assertions, is what Paul writes. And so we can see there are problems in the church in Ephesus, but how does the church, beyond combating that, beyond moving into saying, look, what you're teaching is not acceptable, it doesn't accord with sound doctrine. If, if you go and, and, and Charles is teaching a false gospel and he is engaged and he, he won't relent. And so I go to him and I plead and I say, Charles, Charles, don't do this. Man, don't engage in this, in this false teaching. Don't be puffed up. You need to recognize the error of those things you're doing. Charles comes back and he says, man, I'm not going to do it. I like to teach these things. I like to teach these things. 
Paul gives us a great example. In verse 20 of chapter 1, we read about Hymenaeus and Alexander. And Paul writes and says, They have made a shipwreck of their faith by rejecting a good conscience. You see, their conscience was reporting that they did not believe, they did not abide by true teaching. They had, had made a shipwreck of their faith. Everybody in the church in Ephesus would look and they would, upon hearing the name Hymenaeus, upon hearing the name Alexander, they would think, man, I remember when they went wrong. They, had, they, they, they taught some truly, truly crazy stuff. What happened to those guys? Paul writes, he says, Timothy, this is what you tell them. That they have been kicked out. They have been removed from the church. Man, is that a comfortable thing? Is it comfortable to go to Charles and say, Charles, you're not welcome here at RBC anymore. The things you're teaching are in contradiction to the Word of God. The way you're living your life is in contradiction to the Word of God. I've got to ask you to leave until you will relent. I've got to ask you to leave until your life will be found in accord with the gospel. That's, that's wholly uncomfortable. I mean, most churches will look at it and just say, maybe he'll just quit coming. Let's just not talk to him. Let's let him get lost in the crowd. Maybe we go to four or five key people and say, don't park next to the heretic. He will realize when we quit parking beside him that we don't want him here anymore. Man, that would be much easier, would it not? We have some type of special parking spot, heretics only. They're probably in the back. There are no lines back there. It's very confusing. And so we write, Paul writes instead, he says, look, I have handed these people over to Satan so that they might learn not to blaspheme. The kindest, most generous, only God-honoring thing a church can do when people begin to teach heresy is to talk to them. To show them how the things that they're teaching, the things that they're believing, aren't in accord with sound doctrine. They're not in accord with the Bible. To show them that, man, this is what the Bible teaches, and this is why what you're teaching doesn't line up with this. And then to go to them if they won't relent, if they won't, won't quit teaching that. And say, look, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Man, I still love you. I'm still praying for you. I want to see you come back into fellowship with us, but we cannot have this because it's not honoring to God. Not just because it's confusing people, but for instance, because it is not honoring to God. Paul says that the church should, in an effort to guard the deposit, offer true teaching. In chapter 2, in, in 1 through 6, he does this amazing thing. In, in one, through, 1 and 2, he says, look, this is what we want to do. We want the church, we want men everywhere to offer up prayer. And who are they praying for? They're praying for kings, they're praying for rulers. And for what purpose? So that we might live a peaceful existence. So that we might live a peaceful existence. And then he moves in and he offers this beautiful exposition on, on Jesus. He says, by doing this prayer, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And he offers this. He says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Paul effectively steps in and says, Timothy, this is what you do. This is how you guard the deposit. You step in to the middle of Ephesus and you throw the gates of heaven wide open. And you say, Jesus died for all. 
It'd be like if you went to Brookshire's here and you're walking down the, the aisle and you said, people of Brookshire's, good people of Brookshire's, Jesus died for you. Let me, let me tell you this, he died as a ransom for all of you. And there's somebody over on the cereal aisle and they hear that and they say, okay, that's good stuff. And they begin to create in their mind who this Jesus is that died for them. But we see, Paul safeguards against that. He said he safeguards against that because he gives us a definition of who this God and who this Jesus is. He says there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And what did he do? See, he didn't just live a good life. He didn't just give us kind instructions in this, in this Buddha-esque way. Uh, this is how you reach enlightenment. He wasn't just this Confucius-esque leader who said, if you do these things, you will reach this higher level. No. This man, he came, he lived, and he died, and he offered his life as a ransom. See, you can't just believe in any Jesus that you want to, because Paul writes, and he says, look, the way that you safeguard the deposit is by teaching who Jesus actually is. So we move from the church to the family. See, the church has, has certain roles, and, and, and last among the church's roles, before we move to family, is this idea that Paul is absolutely concerned with what the leadership looks like in Ephesus. See, Paul writes to a church there in Ephesus, and man, people are struggling. They are vying to be the top dog. They are struggling. They are, want to be on top. You'll remember that Paul already wrote and said, some of these guys want to be known as teachers of the law, but they don't have it. They don't even understand about the things which they make confident assertions. So Paul gives us two offices in the church. You'll remember that these offices are the elders and the deacons. And the deacons, man, they're not, they're not CEOs. They're not small business owners. They're not the people that you go out and say, who is the most successful in my congregation? I, I want to find you. I want to find you successful people. Raise your hand. You define success, and I'll tell you if you can be a deacon. Okay? Do you make over $500,000 a year? Because that's, that's really what we want in a deacon. Anybody want to raise their hand and you want to be, that's your definition of success? By the way, you've got to give like 50% of that to the church. Because that's how I define success. See, Paul writes and he talks about these men. He says, these men are servants. They excel at service. In fact, they are so engaged in serving people that if you didn't know they were deacons, you might guess at it because they are already moving in accord with what their name means. Paul writes and he says, look, the church needs to have deacons. He says, look, the church needs to have leadership. The church needs to have leadership. And Paul calls these men overseers. Elsewhere, he refers to them as elders. He says these guys are, are the ones that are to be teaching. Paul says the, says the ones that are teaching and preaching are worthy of double honor. Man, they need to invest themselves in what? They need to invest themselves in the ministry of the word. True leadership in the church stems from service from the deacons and, lead, and leadership from the elders and the overseers. Moving to the family. Paul says that the family should be grounded in the Word. You'll remember that Timothy is called to be a minister of the Word there in Ephesus. And Paul writes these, these things to him in 4.15 4, and 16. He says, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. 
so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. See, one of the things that families need to do is you need to immerse yourself in the Word. And whether you, you, as just a husband leading your wife, or you're leading children, as a family leading children, or maybe you're a single person, and you're invested in the family of the, of the church. You serve in Sunday school, whatever. Children see you. You need to immerse yourself in the Word. You need to be a minister of the Word. You see, Paul doesn't set it up and say, look, the only people that deal with the Word of God are the overseers and the elders. No, what he's writing is a suggestion and actually a mandate that every single person here is a minister of the Word. So in your families, if, if you want your children to grow up, if you want the children of this church and of this community to grow up and to live faithful lives before God, you need to demonstrate to them what it is to immerse yourself in the Word. You need to demonstrate to them what it is to live your life according to the Word. It needs to be more than if somebody were to ask them the difference between right and wrong, and they say, my parents always taught me right and wrong. Yes, but what did they base it on? See, it's got to be more than folksy wisdom. It's got to be more than family tradition. It's got to be more than we get together every Thanksgiving. We get together, together every Christmas. We love each other so much. I mean, those are really good things. Those are fantastic. And if your family gets along, then those get-togethers are probably good too. But Paul writes and he says, look, you need to be immersing yourself in the Word and passing on that tradition to your family. You need to teach your family what true pursuits are. You'll remember that in 6.6, in Paul wrote and said that, that godliness with contentment is great gain. You see, the great sadness is that inside and outside of the church and our culture, there is, is little discernible difference between what people think valid pursuits are and are not. See, we, we, we live in, in society that recognizes success is the person with the most stuff, with the highest education, that, that, that has the best-looking family, or, or whatever it is in, in the group that you travel in. But what we need to do is a reordering of perspective so that our families see that what we pursue above everything, above advancement, above notoriety, and especially even if it leads to discomfort, even if it leads to suffering, that we pursue godliness. That we pursue godliness. That we follow the same advice that Paul gave to Timothy in 6.11. He says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. That we be engaged in our families and, and, and in the life of our community pursuing these things. Man, that people see us and they don't know us necessarily as, as the hard worker that is really knocking it back, making a lot of, different, a lot of money and, and contributing in these ways to our future retirement, but it is they know us as one who pursues peace. They know us as one that pursues gentleness, faith, and love. That if somebody were to say, well, tell me a little bit about Joe, they would say, oh, man, Joe, this guy, it, it's strange, you see, but he dedicates himself to the pursuit of love. 
He dedicates himself to the pursuit of steadfastness, to the pursuit of faith and gentleness. See, because Joe's a Christian. I mean, he works hard at his job. He, he gives himself to this engagement, to providing for his family, to doing well for them. But his Christian faith is the most distinguishable marker in his life. See, families need to make sure that we are reordering what is true pursuit. Man, we don't pursue money. We don't pursue success. We pursue God and those things that come with it. On the individual level, we would all do well to remember with Paul. Now, you'll remember Paul is, I mean, he is the, the height of what it is to be successful in, in ministry or recognized, you know, around the time he's writing. People would, would say Paul's name with hushed tones, but Paul, man, I'm not Paul. He was, he was successful. He suffered, but he was successful. And he contributed to over half of the New Testament. But when Paul describing his own salvation experience, you'll remember that he went through and he's talking about the use of the law. He says, look, the law was given for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly, for the sinners, for the unholy, profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers. For the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Whoo! Paul says, this is what it's given for. This is who these people are. And then Paul writes of himself, and he says this. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the former. And as individuals, we would be doing ourselves such a tremendous service. We recognize that we didn't do God a favor in allowing Him to save us. We didn't do God this tremendous favor in allowing Him to save us. That just as Paul writes, Paul says, look, I was the foremost sinner. We recognize that all of us could fall anywhere on this list. I mean, there's nothing to be prideful about. There's nothing to boast about. But we recognize that God moved in grace to save us, to ransom us. And a life which is so transformed with such a gracious outlook on the movement of God could do nothing but be gracious to those in our community, could do nothing but be gracious to our spouses, to our children, to everybody we encounter. We would live lives which testify to the truth of the gospel. See, this is how Paul ends the letter. Paul has written him and reminded him of the importance of, of guarding the deposit. See, as a church, we need to ensure that we are moving and making decisions in line with guarding the deposit of faith in the membership. We need to make sure that we are moving in line with advancing the gospel to those in our community. As families, we need to show our, our children, we need to show those around us, uh, part of our faith family and our family at home, that the true pursuits for us in life are those things which are in line with guarding the deposit, that we pursue godliness. That as individuals, we should be reminded that God has moved in grace to save us. Paul ends this way. He says, grace be with you. See, grace is unmerited favor. Paul offers us this reminder that the unmerited favor of God 
rests upon us. That the unmerited favor of God, this favor that we did nothing to deserve, nothing to produce in and of ourselves, it goes with us and it covers us in any and every situation. See, that's what it is to guard the deposit. Let me pray for us.